The sermon for today is entitled, Get Armed or Arm Yourself. And since you're from Michigan, your first thought likely is going to be about the Michigan militia, right? Arm yourself. Who, who thought it? Some, somewhere around there. Okay. That is not the type of arming I'm going to be speaking about today. On April 25th of 2016, there was an article in the Washington Post, and it said this, Malcolm B. Benson spent 19 years behind bars after pleading guilty to second-degree murder in 1995. 19 years behind bars. The 50-year-old was from Highland Park, Michigan, and he was released early for good behavior in January 2015. Police say it took only nine months for him to kill again. Nine months. His victim was a 59-year-old Army veteran named Stanley Carter. and He was waiting at a bus stop on his way to work with a group of people when Benson shot him during a botched robbery. According to a federal recidivism study, more than two-thirds of prisoners released in 30 states in 2005 were arrested for a new crime within three years of their release. The study published in 2014 uh, by the Justice Department's Bureau of Justice Statistics found that 71% of violent offenders were arrested for a new crime within five years of their release. 71%. Does that strike you? Maybe, maybe not. To me, this is a very sad statistic, and my question about it is this, as I thought about this. How do you know, I mean, how do you really, really know that the old way of life is done away with? Because he was released for what? Good behavior. How can we really know if there has been a change in somebody's life? We as Christians believe, don't we, in the life-changing grace of God? Can I get an amen out there for that? We hold on to that. We believe that God can change hearts and that he can rescue us from our old life and bring about new life, right? We believe this. So how do we understand stories like this? How do we know even in our own lives if we are indeed different? In some instances, we see that the old way of life is just as alive in people, even in people who say they profess in Jesus Christ. It's probably been the case for many of us at times. As the old adage states, old habits die what? They die hard. Uh, Chris has been doing this lately. Can we stand as we read God's word this morning? I like I like that. Open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4, please. We're going to deal with the first 11 verses today. <clears throat> first 11 verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter writes this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. 
For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is the one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people say, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to grab my water bottle, and people made fun of my water bottle earlier today because it's a gallon jug. You can, you can feel free to make fun of it, and I know it doesn't look normal, but that's okay. It's easier to, than filling up a water bottle a hundred times. So that's how I'm drinking water today. If you don't like it, I'm sorry. Uh, we begin in this passage, in verse 1, with a command, pardon me, and I already touched on this. It's the call to arm yourselves. The Christians who are trying to live faithfully to Christ Jesus in a pagan nation, that's what this whole, the context of this whole letter is about, they are given this command by Peter to arm themselves. Why? Because, verse 1, Christ suffered in the flesh. This arming might make you think of Ephesians 6 where you hear about the fruits of the Spirit, arm yourself with you know, a breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth. It might make you think of those things, but this is a little bit of a different kind of arming. This call doesn't include those terms because this arming is a way of thinking. It's a mentality. It's a frame of mind. It is a mental resolve, so to speak. Much of the Christian battle for faithfulness, Peter says to them, in the midst of your pagan culture is fought in the mind. Having a correct understanding of what our present suffering is and what our present suffering is not. In your suffering, have you ever been confused as why it's there? I think we've all experienced that. Therefore, because Christ suffered in the flesh, we are to arm ourselves, it says, in the same way of thinking that he had. Well, what was this frame of mind? What was this way of thinking? Peter addresses this back in the previous chapter, chapter 3 in verses 17 and 18. So look there with me. In verse 17, it says that it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He seems to be saying that suffering is going to be fairly inevitable in your life, and you might as well suffer for doing things that are godly and God-honoring, than suffer the consequences of doing things that are evil. Does that make sense? 
So it seems that he's saying suffering comes. And then he gives us the greatest example of unjust suffering that we could ever see in verse 18. He says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's why he endured it, to bring us into fellowship with God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So when Peter is telling us to arm ourselves, he's saying, get this mentality right, okay? Put this on every single day, this frame of mind that says suffering for doing what is right is worth it. That helps you to be able to endure the other suffering. For Jesus suffered for doing the ultimate, the greatest good that could ever be done. He was willing to take the sin of the world upon himself, the righteous one, became unrighteous when he took upon our sin for us so that we in him could become the righteousness of God. You see that exchange that happens? That's what Christ did for us. And did he deserve any of the treatment that he got? None. We as Christians, do we deserve some of the treatment by the world that we get? No, probably not. But we get it anyway. This is necessary for us to keep in mind as we think through the implications of this passage. So our command in light of Jesus' willingness to suffer unjustly is to arm ourselves with this way of thinking. A way of thinking that believes that temporary suffering for good is worth any kind of treatment that may come. Now we come to a passage that honestly has baffled many people. To be honest, uh, this passage in 1 Peter 4 is kind of a hotbed for theological differences and a hotbed for heresy, and you'll see why. There's two different phrases that need a lot of explaining, so that way we understand them rightly. So in my already busy week, this took a lot of time to try to think through, but it was rewarding, and I think you'll see why. There are right ways and wrong ways to interpret words and phrases in life, correct? You guys, you guys know this. Think about conversations with spouses. Okay? There are right ways and wrong ways to interpret words. We come to a passage with one of those. Imagine with me for a moment that it is the end of my work day. I pack up my things from the office. I send my wife a quick, you know, kind text message to say, hey, I'm heading home. Schnookums. I wouldn't do that, but just for fun. All right, I send that to her. And as I'm walking out to my car, ding dong, I get this notification. And I look at it, and it says, about time. What would I be thinking in that moment? <laughs> right? What did I, did I do something wrong? Did, did I forget about an appointment? Did I, uh, am I late? Like, what, did the time change happen and I wasn't aware? Like, you would be thinking these types of things if all she said was about time. But that phrase can be interpreted entirely differently if you know the context of the situation. Imagine it is a Wednesday afternoon, one o'clock, and I text her, I'm done with work, I'm heading home. Why? Because we're about to go on vacation. And I say, I'm heading home, schnookums, and send it to her, and I get one from her that says, about time. Do you, do you see the difference there? A tone of voice makes a big difference in interpretation. We don't have that in here. We don't get a tone of voice, but we do have the context of the entire letter that helps us to understand what certain phrases do mean and what certain phrases don't mean. Does that make sense? 
All right, we come to one of those. The first one, there's actually going to be three, I'm going to clarify. The first one is not too confusing, but it still needs some clarification. Peter talks about, in verse 1, uh, whoever has suffered in the flesh. In the flesh. Those three simple words, in the flesh. Peter uses this phrase many times in this epistle, but he does not use this phrase the same way that Paul uses the phrase in the flesh. Many of you might know what I mean already. When Paul talks about us being in the flesh, he's talking about the flesh, the sinful nature, the thing that we're, that's at war against us. You remember Romans 7? You know, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I want to do. That's the battle with the flesh that we all have, right? Every believer has felt that before. Ugh, how do I... You feel that tension. That's how Paul uses the phrase in the flesh. But Peter uses this very differently. When he's talking about in the flesh, he's saying, here on earth, and your earthly, human, flesh and bone life, the daily happenings of life, when you experience suffering on earth. The entire context of this passage is interesting because he is talking about people who are suffering for doing good, Right? People who are suffering because they are following God and it's really hard to keep going and keep taking it. So when he uses the phrase, in the flesh, he is talking about your earthly life. So therefore, earlier when it says that Christ suffered in the flesh, in verse 18, he clearly can't be saying that Christ suffered with his sin nature. Why? It's pretty obvious, right? Christ didn't have a sin nature. So what is he talking about? He's saying that Christ suffered in this earthly life for us on our behalf. So when Peter tells ourselves to arm ourselves with this way of thinking, he's not talking about our struggle with our sin nature. Pastor Chris and Pastor Derek actually made this, uh, I think, very clear when they talked about this idea of unjust suffering as Christians. Living in a world filled with hostility and animosity toward us. All right. That's the fairly easy one to understand. Next comes the hard one. You ready? He who has suffered in the flesh has what? Audience participation time. Has what? Ceased from sin. That sounds really great. I want that, don't you? To no more sin again? Is that a possibility here on this life? Peter says it. What does this phrase mean? This one is tricky. Let's start with what this cannot mean. Number one, we know that it can't mean that if you've experienced suffering in your life that you are now incapable of committing sin. That would be nice, right? I went through the furnace one time. I took it on the chin. I'm perfectly sanctified. Holy, holy. It can't mean that, okay? We all know that, that somehow we've arrived at this level of perfection because we've suffered. Because we know like 1 John 1 articulates, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. You're lying. It says later on in verse 10 of 1 John 1 that if we say we have no sin, we're calling God a liar. It's just not true. And any, any belief or indication that that would be reality, it just doesn't cut it. And we know that. Our only future, or only our future resurrection and glorification is going to lead us to a place where there's no more sin. We know that, right? How else might we know this? Well, on a practical level, and I think you've probably seen this in friends and loved ones at times, we know that suffering doesn't automatically make people godly. That would be nice too. 
Suffering for some people leads them indeed to cling to Jesus like they never have before, and it strengthens their faith, and it encourages them, and they can hold on in the midst of it. And then when they're out of the trial, they see how God has shown his providence and his faithfulness and his kindness to them, enabling them to endure, right? Some people respond that way. How do other people respond when suffering happens? How dare you? I prayed, and I asked you to take this away, and you didn't do it. They get embittered. They get angry. They feel as though God is against them, not for them. So suffering does not automatically make you more godly. We know that's true. So then, what does Peter mean by saying this phrase? Well, I'm glad you asked. Afton, I'm glad you asked. The individual... I spent a lot of time trying to articulate this, and so instead of having just one concise statement, I said a bunch of them. You ready? This is bombardment of what this means. The individual who, because of their faith in Christ, has experienced suffering as they follow the will of God, has made a clear demonstration that they have broken free from sin. Another way of saying it, the individual who, because of their faith in Christ, will follow God even though they know they'll face ridicule, mistreatment, mockery, has shown that sin no longer controls your life. It shows that you have made a break from sin, that sin is no longer the power that owns you. It's not the boss of you anymore. The fear of God now controls you, not the fear of other people. This phrase, another way of saying it, means that you'd rather obey God and suffer for it than live like you used to. If you were saved at an early age, this might be harder to kind of comprehend, but if you were saved later in life, this probably rings very true, doesn't it? I'm not what I once was. The illustration that helps me to understand this phrase of suffering in the flesh, experiencing this unjust suffering as a result of being a Christian, and it causing the ceasing of sin. To me, one of my favorite movies is the, uh, the Rocky series. Who liked the Rocky series? Okay, a few of you. Who does not? This analogy is not for you. Sorry, Rhonda, this is not for you. You'll still get the idea, though. You will. I, I love the movies. I grew up watching it with my mom, like of all people. She, she was like, you want to watch a Rocky movie? I'm like, boy, do I? Very excited. One of the movies, Rocky III, you'll remember, Mr. T played the character of Clubber Lang. Rocky's first fight with him, if you don't know the story. Rocky is the champ. Clubber Lang is this up-and-comer, and this dude is tough. He is angry, and he doesn't mess around. And Clubber Lang, in their first fight ever together, starts pounding on Rocky. I mean, everybody pounds on Rocky, right? It's just the way it is. He starts pounding on Rocky. Rocky's trainer starting to have a heart attack. And so Rocky gets very distracted. Mick, how's Mick doing? You know? You guys know Sylvester Stallone. Adrian. He is getting owned in this fight. And he gets knocked out and loses the fight. Later on in the movie, he finally gets something back. It's called the eye of the what? The eye of the tiger. Actually, to this day, I can't wrestle my kids without them demanding, and I mean demanding, that we play Eye of the Tiger in the background. They have to have it. Even Zion, two years old. Daddy, Eye of the Tiger? Wrestle? Okay, buddy, yeah, I will. So, Eye of the Tiger, he gets this fight back in him as Apollo trains him, right? And then he goes back, 
He's much leaner. He's much quicker. And he is, a, he is ready for a long, long haul, right? And so he starts in this match with Clubber Lang. Round one, he lands jab after jab after jab after jab. And Clubber Lang doesn't really know what's hitting him. He's getting beaten up in the first round. And at the end of the first round, the bell rings. Rocky goes back. He's feeling great. He barely got hit. Clubber Lang got destroyed that round. And you see him go, ah, like Clubber Lang is angry. And that's the whole point. He wanted to make him angry so that he could work his strategy. And if you know the movie, you know what that was. Make him angry with one round and then just start taking it. Let Clubber Lang completely wear himself out. And you see that happen throughout the rest of the match. Rocky finally learns to not box like this, but to box like this and protect his face, which he didn't learn in any of the other movies, apparently. Right? Just like, you know, let's remember that game? The Rock'em Sock'em, that one? Anyway. He finally employs this strategy, and he is taking a beating by Clubber Lang because he's angry. He's body shot, body shot, and he just keeps taking it, keeps taking it, keeps taking it keeps taking it because he knows what? I'm wearing him out. And I'm going to prevail at the end of this. And at the very end, he unleashes, he stops taking it, and then he starts unleashing it himself. And he finally knocks Clubber Lang down. Utterly exhausted, he made it to the end. You guys know the movie? Okay. At one point in the fight, Rocky starts taunting Mr. T. Right? Clubber Lang. He says, you ain't so bad. You ain't so bad. He puts his, his thing on his head and like ruffles his mohawk, right? You ain't so bad. You nothing. Come on. Again. Again. Knock me out. Harder. Harder. My mother hits harder than that. I actually listened to it again to make sure I got these all right because that one's just great. Like a 1980s mom joke. He says, you ain't so bad. You ain't so bad. Christians who just keep taking it who just keep taking it, they take it, they take it, and they keep on taking this unjust suffering, you can have much confidence. You can have much assurance in your faith to know that you too are controlled by God's will now and not your sin. That's the point of this, of that passage. Though it can be confusing on the first read, the point is if you continue to endure this injustice, you can keep taking it, you keep taking it. You're doing it because you know that you're going to make it. You know that you're going to win. You can say to your suffering, you ain't so bad, though it is bad. You can say, I can take this. Because Christ, I mean, think of his example, right? Because he suffered in the flesh, Peter commands us to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking that Jesus had in order that we might live for the will of God and not for sinful passions. Look with me at verse 2. We no longer live in sinful passions anymore, but for the will of God. That's what it says. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Verses 3 and 4 are what we're going to move to now. He says, For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in, he lists this long list, uh, sensuality, passions, orgies, drunkenness. The point here is simple. Now that you no longer live under the controlling arm of sin, you ought to be different. Right? You're done with the old life. 
you're done, Peter says. The time that is past, that suffice for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in these things. You're done. Enough. He says, you've spent long enough time destroying yourself in foolish living without self-control, following your sinful behaviors whenever they call, and living like everybody else. You're done. The sins that he names are living in sensuality. This is behavior that lacks any type of moral restraint. It actually often refers to no moral restraint with sexual relationships, but also with violence. He talks about passions being consumed by, the excessive, uh, by excessive sexual indulgences. He talks about drunkenness. That's pretty obvious. Overconsumption of alcohol, allowing it to control you. He talks about orgies. This is uh, overconsumption of food at, at pagan parties. That's really what that means. Living this gluttonous, not gluten-free, this gluttonous lifestyle that has no restraint. Just keep consuming, keep consuming, keep consuming. Talks about drinking parties, and that you guys know, you've seen TV and you probably have friends that just, they drink and then they act like an absolute fool. This is what happens at those places. And then he mentions lawless idolatry. This is deliberate pagan worship of that time. Peter says simply, Christian, you're done. You're done with this. No more. Enough. It's like uh, when a parent tolerates their kids kind of goofing off at the dinner table maybe one or two times, and then eventually you hear that, you know, that parenting phrase, you know, that's enough. Grow up. It's, it's time, he says, for you Christians to grow up, for all of us to grow up and not be what we used to be. Mature Christians are those who are done with their old way of life. Doing what Gentiles do, that's those who do not believe in the gospel, it doesn't appeal to you any longer, ultimately. And because it ultimately doesn't appeal to you, your old friends, your family, your co-workers, your neighbors, anyone who knows you is surprised. See that word in there? Is surprised that you don't engage that lifestyle anymore. They look at you like you're a weirdo because you don't do the things that you ought to do or you don't do the things that they do, that they expect everybody does. They're surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, it says. How many of you have ever experienced something like this? I mean, really. Have people ever been surprised at the way you live now? Have they ever said things to you like, geez, what's the big deal? <laughs> what's gotten into you? Will you lighten up? It's not that big of a deal. What's your problem? Or my, one of my favorites, okay, holier than thou. <laughs> like holiness is a bad thing? Are you too good to spend time with us now? And so they start mocking you. That's what he says. You're maligned because of this. They're surprised that you don't enjoy the same things that you once did. And so they start maligning. They start mocking. They start speaking ill of you. They talk your back, behind your back now. The reality is, is they don't get you anymore. And so they start to distance themselves from you any way they know how. They treat you differently as if there is something contagious about you. Like, oh no, too much exposure. I might, I might catch what they got. They start to treat you in this way, like you carry a disease. So you become mistreated, mocked, ridiculed. Peter says it's because you're different. Get used to it. Yay! 
If you've seen on TV ever, or maybe even in live, uh, where people do a coal walk, where people walk on hot embers, have you seen that before? I'm going to spend just a minute figuratively doing that, um, walking on hot coals. And when you watch things like that, it's a little bit uncomfortable, right? You're like, oh, 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 are they hurting? Oh, no, does that hurt? It looks like it's burning their foot. Oh. So you might feel that way right now, and that's okay, because a sermon's not good unless it hurts a little bit, right? I mean, think about it, really. Unless it actually pierces down and starts uprooting our sin, not just a moralistic, feel-good message. Peter doesn't feel like he needs to give one of those, <laughs> clearly. Uh, so at this point, I'm going to stand on some hot coals. It's going to be a little bit uncomfortable. But each one of us, no exceptions this morning, need to ask this question. Have you made the break with your old way of life? Have you made the break? Have you ever really resolved in your mind, in your heart, in your actions, in your will, your volition, that following God though it will require suffering, is worth it. This is for your own reflection right now. Have you ever made that break? That, that you're willing to give up old and foolish ways of life, even if they're pleasurable to you, for something greater. Even though it's hard. Have you made the break from sin? For many people in any room, this church, any church, the resounding answer is going to be, yes, I have, and I, I know this speaks true to my heart. Yes, I feel that. But for many others who often go to church, if you're honest, you can't say that you have. So how do you know if you haven't made this break from sin? I have a couple of ideas for you. Number one, you still live the same. By that, I mean nothing has changed about you. You might attend church now. You might give financially to a church. You might even serve at a church. But by and large, nothing is different about your life. You have no fruit, no demonstration, according to this text, to say that, yeah, Christ is worth it all. I don't care what I have to endure anymore. Maybe you like to mention the fact that you go to church in social settings because you think it might give you a moral standing in your community. Maybe you like to share religious, churchy things on social media, but nothing is really different. The world doesn't notice a thing. You look just the same as everybody else. That's one way you might know. Another way is that you don't really think suffering for Christ is for you. We've all felt this at times. I know that, like... Wait, you're saying that, I mean, my life is fairly easy. You're saying that I have to suffer? Really? That doesn't sound like the preachers I hear on TV. That doesn't sound like a lot of the things I've been told or, or read in the Christian bookstore. Really? Suffering is something that I have to, I, I think I can opt out. I think that's actually just for pastors and missionaries and the really religious people. I think those are the ones that are to suffer. But for me, it's just not something I plan to experience. I think sometimes we feel that way. Another indicator, it's pretty simple, but you'll know what I mean. You feel really, really at home here in this world. You feel as though, no, this world really does satisfy me and make me happy. I'm okay here. With rarely an aspiration ever to see the brokenness of this world dissipate and go away when God makes all things new. I can't wait for that day. I know I say that a thousand times whenever I speak or sing, but 
It's that fourth verse of the hymns, right? Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back. We wait for that day, but many of us just feel really, really at home here. Here's the last one. This isn't always an indicator, but it often is. No one has ever been surprised at the way you live. They haven't been surprised at the things you speak of, what you value, the things you take part in, etc. Jesus' words are as pointed as they ever are. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily, this instrument of death, because that's what it takes to follow me. It's Matthew 16, 24. If I've never experienced any sense of this suffering, any distance from people, any comments, any ridicule, any mockery, then we may need to question whether or not we actually take God seriously. Does anybody really know that you're different? Now, I'll step off the hot coals for a second. Everybody, sigh of relief. To those who have made the break with sin, this should encourage you, and I really hope it does. First Peter 4, this passage is meant to be a tremendous source of encouragement and assurance for your soul. How does it do this? As we've said, the very fact that you'd rather obey God and suffer for it should be a proof to your soul that sin is not your master anymore. It doesn't control you any longer. You feel free. It doesn't mean we won't occasionally fall back or slip or make a mistake, but by and large, it doesn't own you anymore. Your willingness to follow Christ and suffer for it shows that you're not dominated by this anymore, that you are indeed his child, that you've been rescued from this sin, from the dominion of darkness, and that now his spirit dwells in you by which you cry, Abba, Father, I'm yours. And the spirit has changed you so that you are now alive in him. So be encouraged. Specifically to students, I know there's more in second service, but if you're a student, have you ever been treated differently because of your allegiance to Christ? Your willingness to follow God even if you get ruthlessly mocked for it. Even if you end up with no friends. Even when everyone else in the youth group starts looking at you as the freak because you're the one who actually takes your faith seriously. Peter says, it's worth it. Amen? To the adults in the room, have you ever had somebody completely surprised at you because you don't do what everybody else does? You don't follow in the same things that they do and they don't understand why? Peer pressure is not something that just students experience. We adults feel it very strongly too. The more money, the more power somebody has, the stronger we feel it. Has anyone ever gotten upset with you because you refuse to take part in the foolishness that your coworkers live in? When people take advantage of your kindness, of your mercy, of your graciousness because you are new in Christ and they talk badly behind your back, guess what? He's worth it. Amen? Moms, this is for all the moms in the house. You ready? Have the playdate ladies ever thought you were strange because you refused to join in the husband bashing? Have they ever thought that you're odd and they say, just lighten up, we're just venting, we're just getting it off our chest. And then eventually they stop asking you to come? Well, guess what? He's worth it. Amen? 
To the dads out there, have your buddies ever gotten irritated at you because you want to stay home and actually invest in your kids and not just let your wife do it? And they get mad at you because you don't join in their foolish pleasures and their crass joking and just grab a beer and watch the game. That's all we live for. And they say things to you like, oh, well, we know who wears the pants in that relationship. <laughs> and they think they're so funny and you've become the butt of all the jokes, guess what? Jesus is worth it. I remember, this is a personal example here, I remember when I put my faith in Christ, I've told you before, I've been, I was about 14 years old. I knew for a fact that I wasn't the same as what I used to be. Something changed inside of me. The things that I used to want to do, I didn't enjoy anymore. I felt repulsed by those things. I all of a sudden had these new desires to please God in my life, even though I was a young Christian, I still had that. I knew that there was this incredible change about me. And I remember, as a Christian, in a public school, everybody else getting invited to the parties, but me, and a few of my other Christian friends. I remember walking away as I worked in a factory for a couple summers, Walking away from conversations because I did not want to hear another stupid racist joke. I was done hearing that crap. Pardon me in church saying crap. I couldn't take that anymore. I remember feeling like a complete weirdo because I didn't want to hear these guys talk in these ridiculously inappropriate and suggestive ways about the women who worked in the same factory. I was done with it. Many people in this room in any church, feel that, and they understand that. But also, there's still people in the room who need to take a lesson from this. Those jokes aren't funny. They're not. Be done with it. There is no place for this in the heart and in the mouth and in the mind of a child of God. You're done with it. I remember a year and a half ago attending my 10-year high school reunion. Yes, it's been over 10 years for me. I'm so old, not. I remember having people very kindly and innocently say, oh, what do you do now? Which provides the most fun conversations you'll ever experience as a pastor. And I tell them, and they respond to you and treat you like the plague. Like in a puppy form, though, because they're really nice about it. Right? Oh, well, that's really good that you do that. Thank you. I'm so happy I have your approval. <laughs> they have this, this nicety that they feel obliged to give to you, but you know for a fact they do not respect my job in the least. So what do you just do, like read your Bible? And, oh, you said you do the music thing? So do you pick out a couple songs for a sing-along on a Sunday? Yeah. That's what I do. And you start to feel, you feel it? You feel the alignment? It's not always overt, sometimes it is. You start to feel like a stranger. We feel this in our families sometimes too, don't we? I love my extended family dearly, so there's my disclaimer. But I feel like a weirdo. Well, I am for many reasons, you guys know that. But I feel like, oh, like the one who does not belong when I get in family, so, social family situations. Many of my family are irreligious and they don't, they really don't care too much about the things of God. And so, 
they think I'm weird as a pastor because I take the whole God thing seriously. And in fact, it's only when somebody dies, see what you know, it's only when somebody dies that they actually want to start engaging you in conversation. They never talk to me, you know, many times in our social gatherings or various birthday parties. But then my extended family, all of a sudden when I'm at a funeral and I am involved in the service, and they're like, wow, I didn't know that, that you sang or played guitar. And I'm like, well, where have you been the last 15 years? But beyond that, the, they're mostly floored at the sense that, wow, this guy actually thinks about the things of God. He thinks about the afterlife. You feel it? I got jokingly called the Grim Reaper the last family funeral I was at. I laugh. I mean, it's funny in some respects, but in others, it's not. Wow, okay, so the only time I show up in your mind and have a value in this family is when somebody dies? All right. What does Peter say? Keep taking it. Keep taking it, Christians. Don't be surprised when you get maligned. Because the reality is, is God is the judge. Verse 5 uh, says this. These people malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. God is the judge. He will judge the wicked for the way that they have treated us, and his judgment is always right. And he will also judge us one day and we will be vindicated. We will be set free and if you follow him, he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. So keep taking it. Uh, verse 6 says that the faithful ones who endure this have a glorious life in the spirit with God. <clears throat> now verse, verse 6 switches gears and I do have to explain this one. It goes back to talking about the Christian again. This verse is not referring to unbelievers because if you don't actually make that connection, you'll entertain all kinds of like possible universalistic thinking, thinking that everybody gets in or that even after you die, you still have a chance to hear the gospel because you know, Christ, the gospel is preached even to the dead. Really what Peter is saying here, uh, neither of those are true. You, I think you know that. He's saying that the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead, even to those who heard it, lived faithfully, and have now died. And then he says in verse uh, 6, that though judged in the flesh, the way people are, remember, in the flesh for Peter means on earthly life, judged in the flesh means that you die just like everybody else does, the way people are, that one day you might live in the spirit the way God does. They live in the spirit now and don't fear the judgment of verse 5 because God has rewarded them for their faithfulness. And as 1 Peter 1 talks about, they now have this glorious inheritance with the saints that will never perish, spoil, or fade. And it's kept in heaven right now for us who through faith are being guarded. You see how all this letter ties together? This is what Peter is talking about. Verses 7 through 11, I'll touch on these quickly. He says, now that you're armed, that you've armed yourself with this way of thinking, you need to live in light of it. The first verse, 7 there, says, the end of all things is at hand. We know that the final age of redemption is here, and the next stage in history is God coming back for his children. So, therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Gentiles are neither self-controlled nor sober-minded. That's what you used to be. Now, control your thinking. Have this mindset in you for the sake of what? Interesting. For the sake of your prayers. 
When you experience suffering, how do you pray? Some people pray, take it away, take it away, take it away. I think we've all prayed that, right? You guys are with me on that? We all want that suffering to go away because, honestly, we don't enjoy it. And that's normal. But rather than praying that way, we can now be sober-minded in our thinking about even the way we pray. Knowing that I can take it and that it's actually God's plan for me to keep on taking it helps me to pray differently. It helps me to pray things like, God, give me endurance. Even if you don't take this away, I want you to, but strengthen me for the journey. I pray, God, that you'd increase my trust in the midst of this suffering because right now it feels like it's waning. Strengthen me because I need it. Rather than just saying, take away the problem, take away the problem, you're now acknowledging that that problem is actually there to make you more like Jesus. And so you say, I can take it. Remember Jesus' prayer in the garden? He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That's a perfectly legitimate request. But he says, what? Nevertheless, not my will, yours be done. Verse 8 speaks of loving one another earnestly. And why do we love one another earnestly? He says, because love covers a multitude of sins. If you've ever experienced this, you know how true it really is. Now that you're armed with the mentality of Christ that says suffering ain't so bad as long as I'm following God, you love one another earnestly, deeply, and truly. And if somebody wrongs you, you don't be quick to cast judgment upon them. You let it go. You're quick to forgive because love covers a multitude of sins. And so he invites you to put that spark of hatred, put it out before that spreads into a wildfire and will never stop. Verse 9 says, show hospitality without grumbling. And in this context, he's telling the people who are surrounded by other sufferers for following Jesus, show hospitality to them. Have a sign, so to speak, outside your door that says, welcome, weary wanderers. <laughs> Me too. All right? And then you, pro you open up your home, which is not yours, by the way. You're stewarding it. Okay? You open up your home for other broken people to find strength and refuge with the people of God. Many of you guys, I know, I've been in many of your homes. Many of you guys do this. You want to take care of people who are weary and burdened and praise God for it because the church needs it. Show hospitality and don't grumble about it. Lastly, he says, use your gifts to serve one another and glorify God. He says, God has graciously given us varied gifts. We don't all have the same gifts. These are given by him so that we may serve one another and glorify him as we do. If it's speaking, being in front of people and proclaiming things, speak as though you're actually speaking God's word. <laughs> don't just air your own opinions and make that the substance of the sermon. Say it like it is, because that's what God has said. So heaven forbid a pastor ever say something that God has not said. Stick with the text. That's a conviction to me every time. Whoever serves should be all of us as one who serves in the strength that God supplies and all to his glory. I'm going to go on a short, very short, I promise, tangent. Okay? It's very short. So bear with me ever so briefly. It will make some of us uncomfortable, and I'm okay with that. Uh, very simply put, serving in the body is not optional. People who serve, say amen. Okay? It's not optional. It's not as if 
we are supposed to come to church, we come, we receive something, and we go. And that's the extent of our church life. That's a fast food drive-through. Okay? That's not Jesus' church. Amen? Um, I think that says enough, right? Uh, maybe. Okay. So pardon me for the actual tangent part. Uh, many people in this room, I'm not going to look at anyone in particular. God loves you all. So do we. We want you to serve here. Many people in the room in this church need to get off their rear and use the gifts that God has given them to steward his varied, wide-ranging, never-ceasing, inexhaustible grace. There it is. I did it. I will step off the soapbox now. Uh, so please use your gifts in this body because you're needed. You might not actually think you're needed in here. You might think there's so many people in this church. Everybody's got it covered. That's absolutely not true. Ken, are there more needs to be filled? Absolutely. You have been created with gifts given by God's very grace. And you ought to use those gifts in this body for the sake of the church and for the sake of his glory. You are not superfluous. You're not an extra. A body needs a hand, needs a leg, needs a mouth, needs an earlobe, needs a kneecap, needs an eyelash. Okay, It needs every part to actually do its job. God will supply you, in case you are wondering, with the strength that you need to serve. So start serving. Ken's right up here. You can talk to him afterwards and find where you can get plugged in. Hope you have a pad of paper. Uh, Start serving and call upon his name to keep his promises. Why? Because he loves to keep his promises. And when he says he will strengthen those who serve, he means it. I've had a long week, friends. It has been a long week, and it has been a good and rewarding week because God supplies with strength. My wife can attest to this. On Friday, I was a bit of a grump for some of the day, and I was convicted about it. And I realized that I was trying to do things like I felt like it was all up to me to get everything done. You know, I had a class and worship leading over the weekend and this to prepare for, and I didn't find out till Tuesday because I have a terrible memory. It was one of those weeks, but God supplies the strength that I need. In conclusion, I want to speak to two groups of people. We can have the band come up now. They're going to close us in a song when I'm done. I want to speak to two groups of people. The first one is this, to those who live on the fence. Those who think that the idea of the God we serve is good, but aren't really, aren't really willing to forsake their old ways of life, who still pretty much live like they always have. Simple question is this. Are you really at peace? Are you really happy with the way your life is? I think when we keep one foot in the church while the rest of us remains in the world, I don't think that settles well in our stomachs. I think it feels pretty uncomfortable because it should. The time, Peter writes, that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. He says, you're done. Today is the call. Be done with it. Repent and believe is the message of the gospel. Repent and believe. So turn from it and trust Christ for his forgiveness because he really is that good. He can help you make that break from your old way of life. Lastly, I speak to those who have resolved to be done with their sin and are feeling the weight of the suffering that follows. To those of you who feel like you can't catch a break, like trying to live for God feels like the most impossible thing to do in your life, 
I want to speak to you. When you feel like one thing after another piles up on you and you don't know anymore if Jesus is worth it and right now it feels like you can't manage it any longer and you feel alone. You feel like you're the only one. You feel hopeless. Peter wants you to be reminded that you're not alone. Amen? You're not alone. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people, of saints, have gone before you who have believed in Jesus, and they have run the race, and they kept going when they were exhausted. They have run the race, and they have finished it, and they have received the prize. You can too. You can keep going. Hebrews, is one of, Hebrews 12 is one of my favorite passages. It says, in light of Hebrews 11, all the people who have gone before us, who have been commended by their faith, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all that have gone before us, in the stands, cheering us on, let us what? Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Keep going. Keep going. Jesus is worth it. Keep taking it. Keep taking it even when you feel like you can't take another blow. Why? Because one day you will see his face. You will see his face and all of this will seem like a vapor that was here for one moment and then is gone forever. Okay? Arm yourself again, Peter says, with this way of thinking and never go back to what you were.